0: Risk assessment. As we say, after so many cycles, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes.
1: Determining how conservative you should be managing your company. And
0: the task is to understand
2: how good or bad things can get. You've got a startup. How honest do you need to be with your investor? This is a trust game. If your investor at all thinks that you're hiding the ball, trust is going to be broken and the investor's not going to give you his money. And how much does a venture capitalist worry about competition?
3: You show me an entrepreneur with no competition, I'll show you an entrepreneur with no market. And no validation of their concept.
1: This is The Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode of The Language of Business, we look at risk assessment. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. What can go wrong sometimes does,
4: but that doesn't mean it has to sink your company. And if you believe in the adage, necessity is the mother of invention, working through some of these challenges might be beneficial to your business. Today, we're gonna talk about risk, defining it and assessing it and determining how conservative you should be in terms of managing your company. As an entrepreneur looking to get funding, where's the fine line between innocuously forgetting to mention a problem versus fraudulently failing to do so? Sounds like a question for an attorney, and we might have the perfect one for the job. He's pragmatic, results-driven, but most importantly, passionate about working with entrepreneurs. Bill Contenti is a partner at to Updegrove, and welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. How honest should entrepreneurs be about their problems?
2: Entrepreneurs should be completely honest with their investors, period, end of discussion. One of the things that entrepreneurs absolutely have to do with their investors is build trust, and if the entrepreneur is hiding the ball or trying to get away with something, an investor will sense it, an investor will find out, trust will be broken and the deal will fall apart.
4: But I'm sure in your office all the time, you and your associates debate business issues versus legal issues. How far-reaching should an entrepreneur be in saying is this something which I'm being overly nervous about or is this actually something that I have a duty to disclose?
2: An entrepreneur is required to disclose anything that's material to the investment. We can talk about what is material but the entrepreneur should set up a few kinds of things in making that distinction. The entrepreneur can sit down with his advisors, his lawyer, his accountant, other trusted advisors and try to assess whether something is a real risk or just a pipe dream that they really can't understand enough to make an assessment on.
4: So let's assume that you followed the rules and did what you were supposed to do, but along the way you find a previously undocumented issue.
2: What do you do then? That happens all the time. Part of the process of doing an investment is uncovering things and figuring out how to deal with them. So something new comes up, you have to assess whether this is something that needs to be disclosed. If it needs to be disclosed, The sooner you get it to your investor, the better off you're going to be. Again, this is a trust game. If your investor at all thinks that you're hiding the ball, trust is going to be broken and the investor's not going to give you his money to invest.
4: Let's assume the investor has already given you his money, but the investor or the attorneys representing the investor have just done a poor job with their due diligence.
2: What happens then? If you are taking somebody's money and you haven't told them all the material things about your business, you are guilty of securities fraud, and you can go to jail. Even for a private deal? Absolutely, for a private deal. Usually you're selling somebody's stock, and when you sell somebody's stock, it's a security, it's regulated. There may be exemptions from the very difficult to comply with regulations, but you're still obligated to completely disclose all the material facts about your business. If you fail to do that and the investor is harmed, you could be sued, you could go to jail, It can get nasty at that point. Where do
4: you come into the picture? If you are vigorously supposed to be representing an entrepreneur and there's problems that you have uncovered that maybe the entrepreneur doesn't even know about or the entrepreneur feels isn't as much of a big deal, what duty do you owe to the investors in that company?
2: Okay, let's be real clear. I don't owe the investors anything. They're not my client. Right. I do owe the entrepreneur quite a bit. The first thing I owe the entrepreneur is a good reading of the law and a good assessment of what his responsibilities are. However, I can't help the entrepreneur break the law. If I really believe that the entrepreneur is engaging in securities fraud, I'm gonna have to give him a choice, which is basically either you can disclose this or you can find yourself another lawyer. It's that simple.
4: And of all of the years that you've done this, how many times have you had to have some variant of that conversation with your entrepreneurial clients?
2: The conversation comes up couple, three times a year, I've never had to resign. Basically, people are generally good at heart, and once they realize that important things need to be disclosed to the investors, they kind of bite the bullet and go ahead and do it. And usually, not always, but usually the investors are much less concerned about it than the entrepreneur is.
4: Outside of going after somebody for securities fraud or having you resign, which is sort of an extreme end of the spectrum,
2: what recourse do investors have? In theory, investors can sue for securities fraud. I can't think of a situation where I've been in where that's happened and I've been doing this for a lot of years. Generally with angels, angels don't have enough invested to make it worth their while to go chase somebody. Because the legal fees alone might be legal more than alone, their investment that they originally made. Right. It goes right over the top. What's surprising is that the venture capitalists usually lose interest once they realize that the company can't be a home run anymore. Let me give you a for instance. Early in my career, I represented a company that took in a couple of million dollars of angel money. Uh, A year after the investment, the investors came back in and looked at the books and realized that most of the proceeds had disappeared from the company being paid to consultants. When they looked for paperwork on the consultants, there essentially was none. There was very little that had been accomplished with the company. And it turned out that unbeknownst to everybody, the president and the chief financial officer who had different last names were actually married. The venture capitalists couldn't be bothered to hire a lawyer to chase these folks. You know, it was a clear case of fraud. It was somebody had walked off with two million dollars. But since there was really no big upside for them, They were much more interested in going on and chasing the next deal than they were in trying to see what could be recovered from this last one. You're passionate about working with entrepreneurs,
4: but if you had to go through this process all over again, would you prefer to be passionate about entrepreneurs or the investors themselves?
2: Oh, I do both. Let's be real clear about that. I represent a lot of entrepreneurs. I also represent a lot of investors. I think that the interplay between the investors and the entrepreneurs. There are some amazing men and women out there starting companies and growing companies. And after they're successful, a lot of them go out there and become angels and back new companies. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bill Contenti,
4: attorney who equally represents entrepreneurs, venture groups, angel investor groups as well as the entrepreneurs themselves.
1: Coming up, ever wonder what a venture capitalist really thinks about risk? But first, how do people in the energy business deal with risk assessment? As the language of business look at risk assessment continues.
4: Bob Goodoff not only sticks with things for the long term, but he's also a pretty energetic guy. Maybe that's because he's worked in the energy industry as an analyst for investment management for over 30 years. His areas of specialization in terms of sectors are oil and natural gas, renewables and chemicals. He also knows a thing or two or three or four about risk assessment, both from a qualitative as well as a quantitative basis. Bob, welcome to The Language of Business. Thanks for having me. So,
0: who reads your analysis that you spend so much time producing? I work for an investment managers who basically invest money for clients. My research is mostly used on a captive basis. My client is the portfolio manager. My job is to understand. Yeah, fundamentals of an industry, understand the managements and look for change, particularly which might be misvalued in the marketplace and use that to select stocks. And
4: why would someone side with your opinion over those of other people?
0: Well, within the firm, hopefully you're the expert and hopefully you've developed a track record of credibility, which usually comes from uh, being able to assess the environment for your industry and being able to select stocks which outperform. Ultimately, if you don't outperform, the firm loses assets or you lose your job.
4: Now, how did you fall into oil, gas, renewables, chemicals, et cetera?
0: Well, I was an engineering undergrad in material science, and my first job was in the chemical industry. I did three to five in Midland, Michigan, and then with Dow Chemical, and then moved east to, to work in the plastics industry. As a result, when I went back to business school, I had a little bit of enough engineering background that it was a natural fit. While there are lots of analysts who are not trained in the industries they cover, just seemed better to me because I I learned more about the industry I understood more about the questions to ask
4: after having focused on the same industry sectors for so long have you been able to effectively produce positive and negative opinions or just on the
0: positive trends no there are things you like and things you don't like (laughs) so So what's an example of an industry trend that you don't like it's so difficult to overcome the publicity of things like fracking, uh, which has negative connotations, but which when you study it, there are reasons why there there should be good practices. However, there's also very good history going back into the 50s of successful fracks. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be regulated to some extent. However, I think there's just been very difficult for the energy industry to overcome the negative headline.
4: How do you take industry trend analysis, however, and then use that to either assess risk qualitatively or quantitatively?
0: As we say in our industry, the future uh, doesn't necessarily relate to past performance. However, fundamental trends of industry are a starting point for understanding what's next. Even the energy industry didn't understand five to 10 years ago the opportunity they had in the United States. However, it seems clear through repeatable discovery of new resources in this country and successful exploitation that there is a tremendous amount of energy. So you do have to be skeptical you do have to analyze and you never want to draw a straight line but you do want to have sound reasoning to indicate to you that there's an opportunity for one trend or another to continue so
4: now you write this for your investors on either the buy side or the sell side Mm -hmm. how do they then integrate that into their decisions we've talked about assessing the risk now how do they actually integrate it into a buy hold or sell decision
0: portfolio manager typically has a style he may be a large cap manager, he may be a value manager, he may be small cap or emerging growth, he may be global. He's looking for a certain kind of uh, equity to fit his style. It might be a small company with lots of potential, it might be a company that's fallen on hard times which may have a turnaround opportunities. And so. As the analyst who covers the industry, my task is to understand enough about the different kinds of companies that he might want to invest and also understand the fundamentals and be able to search for companies which might, again, fit. So if you
4: had to crystallize how to assess risk, what are the first one or two thoughts that come to mind?
0: Covering oil and chemicals and so on, we've been used to lots of volatility. So the first thing you have to understand is things change. As we say, after so many cycles, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And the task is to understand how good or bad things can get. Uh, scenario analysis is a great way to do this. Being a longer-term investor, I tend to do a lot of cash flow analysis. And when you run cash flow analysis, you can create and then evaluate different scenarios. You can change discount rates, you can change the effect on business cycles on the ultimate business, uh, the effect of a dry hole or a series of dry holes on an energy company. What sectors do you think are attractive in the energy industry these days? The US natural gas opportunity is sustainable and longer term, but what I really like is the customers. The customers are benefiting from cheap raw materials relative to the rest of the world. You would not believe how many different companies from different interesting countries are coming to the United States looking to invest because they can take advantage of cheap energy. They're coming from the Middle East, they're coming from Asia. And so the opportunity for secular growth of the economy based on relatively cheap and abundant energy is dramatic.
4: Do you think the risk-reward trade-off is worth it by going outside US borders?
0: It probably is looking at valuation. I have done less work in my career on international, although I've visited a number of companies and countries around the world. But there are obviously changes in psychology which have made the Asian markets probably more attractive than unattractive over a longer period of time.
4: Great. Thanks, Bob. Sure. Bob Goodoff, successful financial analyst for the energy industry.
1: Still to come, ever wonder how venture capitalists really think about risk? Next, when the language of business continues. Our sponsor is Swap-Ons. Want to experience something truly unique on the other side of your phone? Swap-Ons. Personalize your phone case like never before. Pick your case model and color. Sleek design, anti-slip sides. Drop test protection? past and exceeded choose your swaps there are thousands of great designs sports travel nature and more or create your own swaps upload your pics or your business logo add custom frames swap ons they started infinite swap for you live it love it swap it swapons.com you're listening to the language of business look at risk assessment once again here's craig stoller thanks Don.
4: Christopher Mirable is the co-managing director of Launchpad Venture Group, a large investor network focused on seed and early stage companies, primarily focusing on high tech. In terms of activity, they are the largest investor network throughout New England and the third largest in the United States. Christopher, welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks for having me. From your financier's perch, when it comes to risk assessment and when you hear that term, what is the first thing that runs through your mind?
3: I guess the first question we always ask is what kind of risk are we talking about? Is it technology risk or market adoption risk or future financing risk or risk with the team? Risk is in everything we do because we go so early. So understanding the the type of risk we're talking about is usually the very first question. Let's assume it's technology risk. How do you factor that in? We hope the technology is good. <laughs> you do your best to understand the problem being solved, the current state of the market, the resources that are going to be required, and make the most informed decision you can about the achievability of the technology. And to the extent it's absolutely can't be determined usually that's reflected in the deal terms
4: what does that mean are you going to go for a lower valuation of the company are you going to go for a higher ownership percentage in the seed or the second round
3: markets are pretty efficient and you generally need to compensate people who are participating in a market for taking on risk and price or valuation in the case of these kinds of deals is the lever that they grab for first. So often when there's a lot of risk in a deal, it will be reflected in a lower valuation. When you buy a car, a used car There's more risk if it is as is with no warranty than if there is a warranty, so you're going to pay more for the car with the warranty. When risks are being allocated onto the investor, the investor tends to pay a lower price, all Mm -hmm. things being equal. And some risks can be allocated back to the founder. So for example, if you're looking at the risk that the team might break up or one of the founders might leave, you may look at uh, mechanisms to manage the vesting of their stock over time. Or if you're looking at a risk like the passage of time and how quickly will the company execute, you might think we'd obsess about that. And and the reality is we, we worry less about competition than you might think. You show me an entrepreneur with no competition, I'll show you an entrepreneur with no market and no validation of their concept. So competition per se is not always bad. We look for solutions that are smart and they're differentiated from the competition and they're defensible over time. But having competition in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Understanding the market dynamics, understanding the state of the art, understanding the team's ability to to compete Those matter, but obsessing about the features and functionality of a specific unit that's already on the market isn't something we necessarily do a lot of. Do you even purchase the competition's products then? To the extent we're doing biotech or software, those are uh, enterprise software, those are things where you really can't buy it and look at it. I suppose if it were a, um, a consumer electronics device, it might be feasible to do that, or we might make a site visit, but remember, we're often investing at such an early stage that we'd be lucky. To have a prototype to look at, and many times these are nascent markets where there aren't a lot of things on the market, but we do try to understand what's out there and whether this team's got something that's fundamentally 10x better, cheaper, and faster. Let's now focus on the entrepreneur. What advice do you give them in
4: terms of how much risk disclosure they should provide?
3: It's always a good idea to put it out there and control your narrative. We listen to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of stories and I think that the average investor is pretty good at differentiating between competence and confidence. And so I think it's never a good idea to try to gloss over risks because they're going to come up anyway and it's better to get out in front of them and control your narrative. So I usually, when I'm coaching entrepreneurs, I'll tell them that it's important to sort of say, here are what we think are sort of the key." challenges and here's how we're thinking about them here's how we're mitigating them here's where we're stuck here's where we could use your help and all of a sudden i'm mentally coming over to their side of the table going gee that's an interesting challenge how could we solve that so generally i think that if you come into it with an attitude of partnering with your investors and solving those problems together and a collaborative mindset it becomes less about did you disclose the risk and more about hey can we overcome this together
4: Back in the day, we all learned finance as base case, best case, and worst case. These days, what's dehaka is scenario planning and sensitivity analysis. How do you come out on that debate and how much of either do you use?
3: We don't do a lot of sophisticated scenario planning. We spend a lot of time thinking about what milestones are gonna de-risk the company or inflect its value upward and what it's gonna reasonably cost to get to those points. And so we do a fair amount of resource planning and staging of capital, but at the stage we invest, it's very early and it would be misleadingly reassuring to try to build hypotheticals on top of hypotheticals. So you, you take it as it comes to a degree and try to understand, look at the assumptions and to the extent things didn't work out the way they're planned, adjust accordingly and see what you can learn about why certain assumptions prove wrong. Thanks,
1: Christopher. Thanks for having me, Greg. Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of excellentwriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.